there, there's a humility also to getting older in the fashion industry. At the end of the day, it's like, what are we trying to hold on to? Like clawing our way like through something. And like, as you get older in this business, you know, your job is to sort of like try and like usher in the next generation, you know, like that's it. Because otherwise you just get bitter and you just feel old and fat and tired and ugly and all of these things. But if you're actually like helping a new generation come up, then they actually appreciate what you're doing for them and you're helping them and there's an energy and you feel connected to the youth and you're excited and inspired, then, you know, like that's a really amazing place to be, I think. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel all the elements of a well-lived life. During the golden age of couture, fashion clients would cram themselves into crowded Parisian ateliers or hotel ballrooms and watch models parade past them. Perhaps a magazine would shoot something in black and white, and that was it. In design, new products would be displayed at a trade fair and then disseminated to the masses via retail shops, department stores, and monthly home magazines. And in the world of food, it was mostly the domain of men in their white aprons, and if they were lucky, they'd be a guest on a TV show, have a cookbook, or open a restaurant reviewed in a local newspaper or travel guide. And that was basically the world of style, gatekept by a few and somewhat easy to understand. Then came color glossies, cable TV, the internet, the iPhone, Instagram, and TikTok. Amidst this evolution of the culture of cool is the stylist. In the past, they were mostly seen as a behind-the-scenes person only, often playing second fiddle to a photographer. But no more. As someone who started their career in design and style pre-iPhone, I'm endlessly fascinated about how stylists do double or triple duty now as editors, consultants, or even designers themselves. Today, stylists don't just execute someone else's vision, but become their own brand or create a visionary in their own right. And in the age of social media, it's opened up new avenues of creativity and allowed new voices to shine. On today's episode, I welcome three guests that might be stylists per se, but they've all transcended this title to become something else entirely. We'll be joined by Alistair McKim, originally from Northern Ireland, and currently the editor-in-chief at the British fashion magazine, ID. Rarely seen in anything but all black with a baseball cap to match, he has three books under his belt and is styled for the likes of Calvin Klein, Saint Laurent, Bottega Veneta, and notably Marc Jacobs. More on that later. We'll also be joined by Leila Gohar, a rising star and multi-hyphenate whose work revolves around the world of food. Born in Egypt, she's now based in New York and has created gastronomic experiences for houses like Hermes, Prada, and Sotheby's. On top of it all, she's also designed homeware and has a column with How to Spend It, the Financial Times magazine. Last but not least is a former collaborator and interview subject of mine, Colin King. A former dancer turned photo stylist for the likes of Architectural Digest and others, his name is on the lips of everyone in the design world today. Through his Instagram account, product line for the Danish brand Auto Copenhagen, formerly known as Menu, rugs from the upstart Moroccan-made brand Benny, and his hugely successful book from Rizzoli titled Arranging Things, he's changing tastes in design. Think muted natural tones, lots of sunbeams, all arranged with an elegant, unfussy eye. I caught up with this incredible trio to chat about how everyone's highly creative and also somewhat undefinable career got started, how journalism plays into all of this, and even some thoughts on retirement. So I'm curious, like, everyone on this panel is is part of this sort of world of style and styling and art direction um, in a way that I find super interesting and 
very of the moment in a sense um, with how these sorts of worlds of food, fashion, and style kind of work today. So starting off, um, I was wondering if I could ask everyone to sort of briefly talk about how they got started um, with this trade and and where this all came from. Alistair, why don't we start with you? Yeah, sure. What is your... What is your quick, uh, what is your, your sort of 60 second uh, bio of how you got it, how, who you are and where you got started? I actually came to fashion through photography. So when I was a kid, I wanted to be a photographer. And then like right before I applied for art school, I watched this um, John Galliano documentary and found it fascinating. It was like a million miles away from like where I was growing up in Belfast and like, I ended up applying to fashion schools um, when I was 18. I moved to England, to Nottingham, and I studied fashion design there. And um, it was my second year when I started. I actually started collecting ID magazine. I, I first discovered it when I moved to England. And, um, and then actually an editor from Elle magazine in London came up to Nottingham and gave us kind of like a lecture on fashion editing and styling. And it was like really kind of like one of those sort of light bulb moments for me where I was like, that's what I want to do because I want to be able to work with photographers and work with designers. Like already by then in my second year, I think I was like 19 or didn't necessarily want to be a designer anymore. You know, I just kind of like thrown myself into it. And then um, and I was still and I was fascinated with magazines and you know, being a stylist or a fashion editor just seemed like the perfect place for me to kind of be between photography and fashion design. So that's kind of how I got my start. And then when I graduated, I moved to London and sort of knocked on the door at ID and eventually became an assistant there and um, slowly but surely kind of worked my way up. And what was your, your sort of first big break after ID? like the second step after that i mean even then i was assisting edward enenfall who's now the editor-in-chief of british vogue and he was the fashion director of id at that moment that was like early i moved in 2000 so i was really young i was like 21 when i started i was 20 when i started assisting him 20 and i assisted him till i was 22 and already at that point you know i was with the magazine, it was kind of like if there was pages to pick up or like not even pages. I was doing like postage stamp pictures for the magazine, you know, and like then eventually, you know, just sort of it developed from there. It was like, you know, a quarter of a page, a page, two pages, six pages. And then eventually like my, you know, I was thinking about this earlier. It was like the last time I really had an ambition was to do like a full fashion story in, the, in ID magazine. And that was kind of achieved fairly quickly in like mid 2000s like 2005 maybe so yeah it was a gradual thing and Layla what about you how did you get started uh in 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 the business you're in well my career trajectory was not very linear now I guess it's changing and, and I hear that there's like college courses and things like that taught about this kind of thing but when I was um when I was younger, there wasn't. So I studied a bunch of different things, mostly in the arts, not exactly related to food, but I um, always cooked and was around food and worked in restaurants basically for money when I was younger. But I always was like trying to pursue like something else because I ha I didn't have like a clear vision of how I could reconcile those two things in a way that made sense for me. I knew that I didn't want to be like a restaurant chef and I didn't have those ambitions to like one day open a restaurant or whatever. So yeah, I did a lot of different jobs, you know, but it was always like divided. Like I would 
do like kind of like weird little art projects but then I needed like an actual restaurant job to pay my situation um and then eventually those two worlds kind of came closer and closer together and I started I was like doing these projects on the side like very small scale and friends and people that I know started kind of coming to them or hearing about them and then eventually like through word of mouth it kind of evolved into this thing that became my career um and I was doing like just it grew like very organically and it was like you know I could I was doing um bigger projects and then I could I I saw a world where I could kind of make a living doing this kind of thing and I left restaurants that was a long time ago I was like 25 and I left um that job eventually because I could make a living doing this other thing and then it evolved I mean in the beginning like the projects were a much smaller like less ambitious and then over time it's sort of become what it is now which is kind of in between these two worlds and Colin uh you and I have, have known each other for a while and we worked together on some stories back uh my days of departures and I I wrote a a trend piece that you were smack in the middle of um, which I, I always love to reference, uh, the terracotta cult, which I kind of feel like you are a high priest of, um, in this new sort of world of interiors, uh, aesthetics that is very of the moment. Um, how did you, what is your 60 second, uh, uh, origin story and how did you, how did you kind of fit into this? What do you, how do you describe what you do today? Because, which it has evolved since, since I first knew you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's so interesting to hear Alistair and Layla about all of this because, you know, my path to wasn't linear at all. I, um, you know, I studied dance my entire life growing up and I came to school here in New York City for dance. And then when that had to become the way I paid for things, that was very difficult. And I began like seeking stability in other ways. And I moved to LA and I went into this world of personal training. And then into estate management, um, and then real estate, and and then finally landed in this like interiors world. And I my first job was as a content manager at a interior design firm out in Los Angeles. And you know it was right when social media was coming up, and I really it was very self taught. This uh, design firm had a little shop in the front of their their firm, and it was like antiques and kind of small decor. And I really built their Instagram, making these little vignettes, kind of creating these relationships with objects, and really teaching myself through my phone and uh, and and capturing it that way. And then I moved back to the city, and I um, and I began to kind of try and pave this new way. But I was still doing all these odds and end job. I was still training. I was still um, consulting on people's social media. And then um, it, it really wasn't until I met this guy, Jack Seglick, who was the creative director at Dean and DeLuca. And he's now in his 80s and he's this kind of prolific artist. And something about his sensibility, I walked into one of his homes and it really struck a chord with me. And I, and I, I saw objects in a whole new way and I pitched it to Tom Delavan at T Magazine. And that's when my life really changed. Like, Tom offered me a job. Uh, we produced that story together. And I was really interested in capturing um, these relationships between objects and interiors. And I didn't know what styling was. I had no idea. Growing up as a kid in Ohio, that was not like a, 
uh, career, a viable career. And people really told me I was a stylist before I knew what that meant. And so I, f- I really fell into it. Before we return to the panel, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design, where architects, interior designers, and estates have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 350 global brands. With in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design, Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives by designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like Piero Lissoni, Philippe Stark, and Patrizia Urquiola. And if you're in love with the subdued, rustic, minimal look of stylist Colin King, then you should definitely search for pieces on Lumens.com. On the site, you might find minimalistic pendants from Muto, mid-century classics from the likes of Carl Hansen, or elegantly minimal objects and furniture from the brand Otto Copenhagen, including pieces by Colin King himself. My favorite is the interconnect candle holder that doubles as both candlestick and sculpture in such a clever and chic way. Or maybe I would choose the converged bookends in Lava Stone. That's because in any Colin King interior, every object, no matter how mundane, needs to have an eternal artistic quality. So visit lumens.com to find the perfect iconic piece for your interior. Or just copy Colin King style until something clicks. And Alistair, was there a project that you worked on maybe early in your time when you kind of look back and you think, okay, that was the first time that my own sense of my own aesthetic or my own signature look, if someone were to look at a job now and go, oh, that's obviously done by Alistair, like that's clearly his him was there a project like a breakout project that you think like you really got to go beyond a postage stamp style you know a front of book story somewhere yeah it kind of it actually took a while because i think i needed to i always had this sort of idea that to become known you just have to beat people over the head with the same thing over and over and over again i still really believe that especially in the way that we look at work today it's kind of like you know to have your own aesthetic almost like i still almost do the same work every day that I always have. And I think all of us here have that kind of like authenticity to the aesthetic. But it took me a long time to really have the confidence to to start like pulling from all of my experiences. You know what I mean? It was like, I think once once I started mixing, you know, like high fashion and sportswear and streetwear and like all of those things together, which is really kind of like my life story of like how I sort of my journey to fashion in a way, because like, you know, like Colin, it's like he was in Ohio, I was in Belfast. It certainly what there was no fashion at all. Like it wasn't it wasn't about fashion whatsoever. It was about street style, you know, and like I was a skateboarder and a surfer and into hip hop and punk and all of these things. And like once I was once I had the confidence to sort of pull all those things together, which took me a long time. I mean, I think I was already like fashion directing ID by then. Once I sort of like got into that aesthetic and at that time, you know, there was designers sort of like coming along that were doing the same sort of thing. It sort of, it all kind of gelled together, but it was, um, you know, it was really designers that sort of live in that space of like the melting pot of like streetwear and high fashion and sportswear that, that I've always really resonated with. I think like, Raph Simmons had a huge impact on me in like the late 90s when I first started like 
discovering fashion, you know, because it was like I could see like the 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 boys that he was casting, the haircuts that they were doing, the the silhouettes, the volumes, like the culture, the the reference points were all things that I'd experienced, you know. So like Raph definitely had a huge impact in that sense. And then you know by the time I was sort of putting all those things together myself, it was like you know, the Vetemont era before Balenciaga with Demna and all of that kind of stuff. And like, I I think my reference point was always like Ray Petri, who was kind of doing that in the 80s, you know, so it's almost like my own story and my own experiences and my own references kind of just ended up sort of aligning with what was happening at the time, you know. And Leila, was there a project, you know, that you could maybe point out that helps explain to someone, you know, maybe who's never seen your work before, you know, what does Alela, you know, Gohar project look like? Like, what is your style if you had to explain it to a blind person? For me, it was like a combination of things. In in the beginning, you know, I was doing a lot of different jobs, like assisting artists. And then I worked at like this photo studio and a whole bunch of different things that in the beginning, I didn't really understand like how that was gonna relate to what I was doing or where I was going. And as I said, it was like these two kind of divided things. But then it became uh, more clear to me, I guess that all of that was kind of like an education. In a way you like train your eye your sensibility gets uh, like evolves and gets kind of um, built and sharpened and you sort of you develop like a style and I think in the beginning um, it's a lot of just like it was great I think to just be a little bit naive and young I guess that's the good thing about being young <laughs> you just kind of go for it uh, now it's different I guess because because of how quickly like we share images and everything just like moves so quickly that I, I often wonder like if I was just starting out now and there was just like you're just bombarded with these images all the time, like how, how that would interfere with like developing your own style. Sometimes I think it's, and I, I not, not that I, I mean, obviously we all, you know, are here in New York and everything's on the internet and whatever, it's impossible. You're not going to like kind of be a hermit and just look within, but sometimes I purposely like don't pay too much attention to what other people are doing around me because I just kind of want to keep doing my thing. And 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 I agree with Alistair that you kind of develop a style over time and then you have to kind of keep going at it and going at it and going at it and that becomes your your thing and and there's nuance of course in that and it evolves and sometimes like I'll do something and then a couple of years later I'll be like oh my god this was the worst thing I've ever done I can't even look at this <laughs> but it's still kind of to like any other eye it looks like everything that I do you know like, what's wrong why is this different than what you did last week but to me it's different so um if I were to like say I don't know like one exact moment I think there's been many different moments where um where where it's it's I've had these kind of moments that like you know I almost feel sometimes like I'm how did how am I getting away with doing this you know because um because yeah it wasn't it's not like a, it's it's not a typical job it's not like a job that I can even easily describe and sometimes you know I'll be sitting like in a like well, several years ago I was in Paris and I was like presenting this idea to these like executives um 
for this thing I was doing. And I had this like kind of PowerPoint Google slide thing. And I was like, and here, like I'm suggesting to do this giant piece of sausage. That's like, whatever. And it's like these like men in suits, just looking French men in midlife. Like, and I was just looking at me like, what the hell is going on? And sometimes I think, you know, I, I like in my head, I feel like there, like there's this thing where I always think someone here is thinking like, who let this person in? Like, how did she <laughs> infiltrate this? Um, so yeah, there's, there's many moments like that. It, it still happens sometimes. And, and, uh, Colin, that actually, you know, we talked about, you mentioned technology a little bit about viewing sort of the world through your phone. And of course you, you and a few others, uh, in our sort of world of world of interiors, for lack of a better word, uh, you know, it's coming up through this age of Instagram and, and how this is sort of defining people's aesthetics much more than maybe print would be. Did you ever think where your career would be if Instagram didn't exist or how that has affected you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think with the dance, with my dance training, like I've always looked at the world kind of cinematically. Like I always just, even when I was in like a kid, I would like picture myself in a music video. So I feel like there would be some sort of like with music and, and what, what the whole scene would look like. So there was always some sort of technology tied to what I was doing, even as a kid, like having like a little, I remember it was like blue and yellow plastic camera, like a Kodak camera. And I would like arrange things in my room and take a picture of it. So capturing these arrangements was always, was always part of it. Um, I think I really enjoyed listening to you and Alistair uh, and Layla about just like finding your own style. Like for me, I did find it through my phone, like through photography, because, you know, I didn't have any work to show. I didn't live in a nice apartment. I didn't, I wasn't really styling yet. And so I would take myself on these artist dates. I would either go to, you know, the Met or uh, a gallery and really like find things that I was drawn to and like have the confidence to like what I liked. And then, you know, whether it's, I, uh, I enjoy negative space. I like a little bit of a warmer, Alistair, we joke about it all the time. It's like, you know, you do develop a signature style and you don't even know that you're, I, I didn't know at the time that I was developing that. Um, I think without Instagram, uh, I think I'd probably be doing the same thing. It's just, you have so much visibility and you're able to share your work and be seen by people you would never normally have access to. Like when you think about how many people can see what you're doing that you've never met all around the world, it's, it's really, it's actually kind of daunting in a way, but, um, you know, I also love, I love using Instagram as a resource to see what, um, you know, people across different genres, not necessarily peers of mine are doing, but fashion, food, um, art. That's, that's fun to me because a lot of times I wouldn't normally, or I see things I normally maybe wouldn't seek out. Um, but I definitely would be doing what I'm doing now. I just maybe wouldn't be able to share it as widely. And Alistair, I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, I recently saw on Instagram, you were working with Mark Jacobs on a show. You guys were really kind of intently working there together. What are your relationships like when you're working with a fashion designer today? Um, I think a traditional notion for maybe for older listeners that think of, you know, the designer designs clothes and then the stylist might just sort of like dress the models and 
decide what shoes to wear and and push them and judge the hair and push them out the runway and be like you look fabulous done and, you know and then done like that you're that they're they're doing everything and you're just sort of serving them like what is your relationship like what is that that interconnected I mean, it's process definitely like? um it's definitely a service position for sure you know what i mean and i think like that's you know whenever i've got to work with very established designers like mark you know, the, the initially the fear sets in, you know what I mean? Someone that's been working for 30 years has been at the top of his game is one of the most like prolific designers on the planet. And then he's asking me to work with him. And just like Layla said, I'm kind of like, are you sure you've got the right person? Like I, I, maybe he wanted, the, you know, somebody else to do this or whatever. And like, and then I think what takes the pressure off me is when I think that I'm just there to help, you know what I mean? I'm there to sort of like, and I'm very good at making decisions, you know what I mean? I think so. And I, that's how I help because I'm quite quick at decision making. And I think that's helpful for designers because they're really in their worlds, you know what I mean? And there's like so many people like pulling at them and so many ideas and so much happening. And, you know, it's just good to have somebody that can come in and be quite kind of like pointed in their in their sensibility where it's like let's do this let's not do that like and, and also you know it's like it's part therapy like as well of like you know making everybody feel confident in what they're doing and you know i i i you know i i love the collaboration aspect of everything that we do you know i do i don't do anything on my own um so i just like the energy of people and i think like what happens with designers is is very personal to them you know like i can tell you the way that i work with mark or i could tell you the way that i work with Matthew bottega or i could tell you the way that i work with anthony saint laurent or what like well tell me how you work with uh how do you how you work with mark for example let's just use him as an example so so the beauty of mark and the reason that he's still like for me one of the most prolific designers on the planet is because he really works in like a tiny little team and he's and he has his own floor at the company he's on the seventh floor and it's like a think tank you know he li literally like um works with a very small team and it's the most creative environment i've been in you know because he's he's ser he's only serving his own creative um perspective you know he's he's not there to serve a customer he's not you know he's just he's literally there to be creative and that's like you know for him it's all about the craft and it's about making things you know and it's there's something very beautiful about that kind of again like that service of of putting work out there in the world to purely just to be and as an art form and um he's really lucky in the structure that he's in at mark jacobs that he can do that because there's teams elsewhere like making the bags making the shoes making you know the 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 runway is like its own specific little um pocket of the company um and he really invited me in like in such an incredible way like you know so i go we look at fabrics we talk about everything you know from 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 the inception all the way through and then you know i kind of go in and like he they would they work on things then i get to go back and look at what they've done and we work on edits together and you know the way that we do the runway is really like by outfit you know what i mean so it's like this is the jacket this is the skirt this is the sock this is the shoe this is the glove this is the hat that you know everything is like pre-planned so there's no like styling you know the styling is done in the process and he's very much a process person like and i think what's really also very inspiring about the way that he works is that we show everything you see on the runway we is everything we made we don't make like excess you know it's like everything is like pre 
imagined, pre-designed and and put together an outfit. So it's like we know exactly which glove is going to go with which outfit and we choose the leather swatch and that glove is made for that outfit, you know, and that's very different than working at a big house, um, you know, in Europe, which is much more like, you know, there's so many more merchandising conversations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I mean? And it's much more about like what stores want what and what, which regions and, you know, this, that, and the other. So um, Mark is really, it's an inspiring place to work because it's, it's almost like the fundamentals. It's kind of like working with like the most genius fashion student on the planet, you know? And do you have a process that would you approach to every job? whether it's working with a gallery or working with you know a design collaboration like your your products with hey is there a process in which you work like are you someone who like takes tons of scouting shots do you do tons of research like what is your like i mean i i do i kind of classify the things that i there's like two different um like it's like a pool and then like another pool the first pool is like what I'm kind of known for and I've done for a while, which is like the food related projects. And um, with that, generally speaking, I mean, minus the time, minus the stuff at galleries, which is generally independent and not associated to like a brand or some kind of commercial partner. Um, generally, there is it's it's kind of a partnership. So a designer will come and be like, OK, we're showing our new collection or releasing like these bags or whatever it is. Um, and we want to invite some people and like do something around it that doesn't, you know, just feel like a regular kind of opening, I guess. Um, and in that, when it's like that, it's definitely like a dialogue and a conversation between uh, the person and myself. And they talk, you know, I ask a lot of questions in the beginning and they show me their kind of references and how this thing came to be and, you know, the evolution of whatever it is and what's happening now, like the end kind of result and then i sort of react to that feeling in a way you know you react to that kind of the way that that thing makes you feel and come up with something and then generally there's like sketches and you know the 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 location plays a big part of it um so we figure out where we're gonna do this what the space looks like um and then i come up with different ideas and it's in those in those cases it's related to food you know so there's like i say for example we're gonna build this like you know table that's like 20 meters long and then it's gonna be suspended from here and this is what's gonna be on it and it's gonna be like in a pattern or a grid or whatever it is and then the other stuff is product design and that i've started doing more recently in the last couple of years with that i it's a i i guess it's a little bit different the the food stuff is also kind of providing a service, you know, because it is it exists for a reason and it's to serve a group of people. Uh, whereas with the product design, it's slightly different. It's designing objects. It's not so much a service. So in in that sense, I sort of think about it. Always starts with like sort of fragments of ideas or a little kind of. I always feel that there's this kind of like chaos in my head, like all of these. Um, impressions things that I see like stuff that I collect and it can be like any mundane like I, I'm always really really um, obsessed with all of the construction stuff on the street you know those orange cones and how they mark the buildings and stuff like that and I'm always like looking at those things and everything kind of leaves like a little impression and then when I do an actual project it's almost like you go into that bank and try to access it and then 
come up with a pattern that makes sense. Mo I mean, most people, if they look at it, they're not going to be like, oh, this is a pattern that makes sense. But maybe it will make them think something or feel something or just be like, oh, this is beautiful or there's there's some kind of thing there and you can't exactly put your finger on it but it's like and, and at this point how how much is the product part of your business is it 50 50 or is it i i kind of like weave like kind of go in and out um i'll do you know i somehow my i have i get very easily kind of distracted so i really when i do something i really need to like kind of like get in there and just like be one track mind for you know for depending on kind of my schedule and what I'm working on you know for a couple of weeks I'll just be really intensely focused on doing this one thing and then I'll kind of switch I'm pretty bad at multitasking and like switching lanes I get very like absorbed in the thing so yeah it's not exactly 50 50 it's still like more of the food projects and then I would say maybe 40 percent of the product design before we return to the panel a word from our sponsor Anne Sachs in the world of inspired interiors, there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless American style. As an interiors editor for nearly 20 years, one name comes up again and again, Anne Sachs. The brand opened its first Portland, Oregon factory 30 years ago, realizing a vision to produce the finest handcrafted tile showcasing modern, timeless design. Anne Sachs' latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs, a key element to the design of any kitchen, bathroom counter, shower surround, or if you're lucky, home bar. With the company's incredible experience as a foundation, Ansax is offering a curated assortment of the world's most premium stones, stone mosaics, and accompanying slabs, as well as dimensional stones. And this September, the company will open its third slab gallery in New York's Long Island City, after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. At these incredible one-stop destinations, you'll be able to work hand-in-hand -hand with their incredible design associates on everything surface-related. For more information about any Ansacks tile or stone, or to find a showroom near you, visit www.ansacks.com. And, uh, you know, speaking about branching out, uh, Colin, you have a new book out. Um, which kind of is is very sort of unique in, in sort of this world of sort of books about interior style and which is almost in a way, if you don't mind me saying, is almost kind of like has a more of a retro feel because I feel like recently so many of the books that we see are monographs of a certain interior designer's style, right? And it was back in the day where books really kind of replaced the internet and they would kind of be like, this is how you dress, you know, this is prep style, or this is this kind of interior, um, you know, really kind of defining a certain type of aesthetic. So talk to me a little bit about this book and how it happened and, and what's inside. Yeah, for sure. Well, the books are called Arranging Things and it's it's almost this idea of like demystifying styling and you know it was interesting to hear you Layla and and Alistair talk about process because being self-taught I didn't think I had a process it's very hard to like distill it in words and so when I worked with Sam Cochran who wrote it and Javis Len who designed it I really in that collaborative nature relied on them 
as this like bird's eye view and, and, and this fresh perspective to look at my work with new eyes, how we're going to put this together. I wasn't really pursuing a book at all. Um, this woman, Carla Glasser, she's a literary agent. She reached out to me. She said, are you working on a book? That was the subject line of the email. And, um, and yeah, we, we got this book deal with Rizzoli and, you know, I have a really hard time differentiating like the true from the false with my own work. So relying on these two um, very visual aesthetes that I, I trusted was such a incredibly rewarding process. And and like you said, it's inside. Um, I think people, anyone who I've watched look at it are pretty surprised because of the spectrum of work. There's a chapter called Vivid Detail, which is just like a thick chapter full of color, which a lot of people look at my work and don't think that I know how to handle color or work with color often. And uh, like Alistair and Layla said, I am in the service industry. So working with these designers who love color, really going in and abandoning myself and what I like at the door and really jumping into their world and figuring out how to tell the story that they're trying to tell in a way that people that is digestible for people. And it shows off their work in the best light because there's, I respect people who really can use color well. And I think sometimes like Tom Delavan and I always talked about using neutrals is just easier. Uh, so yeah, and I'm and I learned through them. At walking into these AD shoots is like a masterclass. Um, I just got off a call planning for an AD shoot on Friday, and and talking through art and objects and florals and all of those things because you know a lot of these designers get one chance to capture these rooms that they've spent years working on, and a lot of people like I've learned so much through books and through photos. So I really take my job seriously because it's it's really the only like a lot of people will never get to walk into that room and a designer can really only show their work through images and photographs and how it's captured and they usually only get one shot so it's really important to um to help in any way i can really uh bring their vision to life you know it journalism is actually such a big part of uh everyone's world even though most of what you do is more of a, in sort of service of a creative community or in other industries like Alistair with ID, Colin like with AD or Layla with how to, you know, Colin with how to spend it. I'm, I'm wondering if there's a story or an issue that you guys have worked on lately that you think was impacted by the way you brought your eye to things, right? That your own specific kind of, uh, I, for lack of a better word. Alistair, is there something where you kind of put out there into the world through ID? Yeah, I mean, obviously with ID, it's like there's hundreds of people involved in every issue. But um, I think my job is to kind of like at least set the tone and kind of lead the way and then just like help everybody to kind of execute their work. But I mean, for me, like the the pandemic was like a huge learning curve you know, because it was like something that we could never be prepared for. And I remember um, in March of 2020 thinking like, oh, I guess we're going to like close the magazine. Like like literally one day I was like ready to close the magazine. And then the next day I was like so excited about like what we could do that we'd never done before. So my, the, you know, I started, I was became editor in chief in 2019. And then so like, you know, I'd only done like, uh, I'd done three issues before the pandemic, you know, and, um, and my favorite issue that I've edited 
to this day is the summer of 2020, which, which was like right in the midst of like the chaos. And, um, you know, and that was, you know, I remember it was just about this idea of like connectivity and how we could do this and what we should do. And, you know, it's really, again, it's like the creative community sort of, you know, came to me with like different ideas and what we could do and how we could make things, how we could make work, you know, and we did like, and we, we just kept going. Like everybody just like, you know, we got on zoom and we just like kept doing it. And like so much of the work was shot on screen and so much was done remotely. And like we did like the cover of that issue was Pharrell. And we actually, we didn't want to shoot him on like zoom or FaceTime. So we actually sent, sent the camera equipment to Miami and his, music engineer that was working with him during the pandemic he was living with him in quarantine the music engineer set up the camera and like we basically did it all from london on zoom and facetime and directed pharrell with the equipment in his garden in miami and like that was the cover of the magazine so it was kind of like even trying to take this idea of like obviously a lot of that issue we shot on screen like jürgen teller did like ipad stories and like you know and it was a lot of like the kind of iconic sort of um photographers and creative collaborators of id but just doing things in a different way like mario sorrenti did like a drive-by shoot where he went and drove around with mary his wife and like took photos of all our creative community in new york and like went upstate and like shot all over like all over um new york and um it was kind of amazing to put that issue together and then we had a lot of like you know portfolios of work that came in and like personal projects and things that people were thinking about and we we did like um we the very first shoot we did during the pandemic was Willie Van de Per did like a shoot we called Home Alone where he literally like FaceTimed all the supermodels in like in quarantine in their homes wherever that was all over the world and we put that out as a digital project because we wanted to do that quickly before we could actually print an edition so just stuff like you think that and do you think that uh the fact that you know you joined in 2019 and you coming from a styling background rather than coming from like being a words person that this is essentially like your moment to shine because you were able to be flexible and creative in the way that I think it was just our moment to survive. Product. It wasn't even about shining. It was about like, okay, what do we want to do? Like I, 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 you know, ID has been going since 1980. So it's certainly not about like my legacy It's the brand's legacy. And like, I just love the brand so much. I was like, how are we going to make this work? How are we going to survive? How are we going to continue kind of, um, I just didn't want to shut the doors and I didn't want to go fully digital. Cause I think like for us to print, edition is such an important part of the digital kind of landscape like without the without the print we don't have like the nucleus for all of the other stuff that we create you know and i think like it was really important and honestly that first issue was meant to be a zine and then it became like oh we'll do a small issue and then it became just a normal issue and like it was we i actually had to order more paper and like we you know we just there was so much incredible work that was coming in through the door and i think like you know i was literally like in Canada in a basement, like putting that issue together, you know, and, um, you know, and I think, um, you know, like I said, I've worked my way from like assistant all the way through to like editor in chief. So it's not like I, I just, the, the brand is kind of in my blood at this point. And even when I was fashion, I fashion directed for five years before I was editor. And like, even then I was really involved in like the kind of all of the creative conversations. Cause I'm, it's like, 
like Layla was saying, I hate it when people ask me what I do because I don't really, it's such a long conversation. It's really fucking boring, to be honest, because it's like, I do this and this and this with this person. I do that. You know, it's got to be more, This the question has to be more specific because, you know, what's the difference in being an editor of a magazine and being a creative director or being a creative director and a fashion director or a fashion director and a stylist or a stylist and an editor? Like, what's the, we all do everything. It's just like a bunch of people making work, you know, so. And Leila, tell me about your your collab your recent collaboration with Hay, and how that came about, and like what do you think made it successful in your mind? Is it successful? <laughs> or yet to know it's new? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. People like it. I like it. It's successful. <laughs> that I mean, that's a that's a very valid question. What is success today? Maybe I don't know. You tell me. Um, I'm just messing around. Uh, well, actually, it also relates to the pandemic in that um, I met the founders of Hey and became kind of friends with them and um, Mete Hey, who's their couple and the woman is called Mete Hey, and we became friends and we had kind of a similar, I guess like maybe a similar way of seeing things, you know, like something that felt aligned, even though she does something quite different, there was like a, a kind of synergy and when you know, um, yeah. And so over the years, we kind of became friends and she she knew that I didn't have any, definitely no industrial design experience. I had never made um, like an object outside of kind of what I did with food, which was more like set design, kind of like we would make certain furniture or things or whatever that was m more temporary and, and just to serve like a specific purpose for a limited amount of time. Anyway, she knew that I didn't have any experience doing that kind of thing, but she asked me if I would be interested in making uh, a collection of objects for hay. And I was really into the idea because it felt like a little bit like jumping into the unknown, but there was some familiarity in that I think I was kind of thinking about it and approaching it in a similar way. Uh, but I was very busy before the pandemic with all the different projects that I do. So I wasn't able to commit to doing it right away, but I was like, this sounds great, but when am I going to do it? It requires a lot of time. And then basically with the pandemic, um, in my, in my job, there's no such thing as like zoom or working from home or whatever. Like it's very tactile and, um, you know, we make things with our hands that people literally consume. Like there's no kind of other way to do it. And I, in the beginning, you know, you know, as we were all kind of navigating these uncharted territories and trying to figure out how across the board we're going to continue to do our work, you know, people were like, well, how do we take this digital? How do we do like online, blah, blah, blah. And honestly, it made me really depressed because um, I, I just couldn't, to me, I'm 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 very like tangible in real life. I mean, till this day, I barely know how to use Zoom. I'm impressed that I managed to figure this whole thing out. And whenever you know I have the opportunity to like do it in real life, it's just it make it to me it feels um, much more intuitive. And um, um, so anyway, but when everything kind of came to a standstill, I was like, oh shit, now what? Like, how am I going to keep doing this thing? And I and I. I, I don't want to just kind of like do these like digital things. Like it just felt like it wasn't really who I am. So I called Metehe and I was like, hey, I think I have time now. It seems like we all have a bunch of time. So why don't we have a conversation about this? And then she was um, totally on board. And yeah, and I basically kind of 
got into um, doing that and I sort of started with this like a sort of like a thread of an idea and then it all um, kind of evolved around a collection evolved around this idea and during the pandemic and it was it kept me quite positive because I remember there were talks that like things will never be the same and like we're never going to be able to like get together again and all of this kind of thing. And I was making like plates and um, jugs and things that like people need for entertaining and for, you know, to use on a table and kind of to come together. So it was really nice to be able, it was kind of like a light at the end of the tunnel, like, oh, eventually we're going to be able to like use this stuff again. And this is why I'm making it. And it was an interesting process also because, um, you know, Hay is a Danish design company and they have like a very, um specific aesthetic that of course there's things that you know within it that I can identify with but it's not mine like I I didn't create that you know so in a way it was like very quickly on very early on I mean I realized that that it's like I'm not just like making my dream objects for myself like that's not the point of this this is to serve a purpose and they have a customer and and they were very like open and you know kind of open to my different ideas so it wasn't like they told me oh you need to work within these palettes or within these materials in the beginning it was very open but I realized like yeah they have you know and they've spent years doing that they have like a very specific kind of aesthetic and a, and a customer that's buying these things and I need to make something um while maybe it could challenge the person in some ways or you know they go towards like something that you know a little bit outside of their comfort zone it needs to fit within that world and I'm not just like here making things like for myself um so yeah but i it was like a it, i i saw it as like a kind of fun challenge or a mission, you know? Before we return to the panel, a word from our sponsor, Fort Street Studio. Fort Street Studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. The brand services a global clientele from its flagship showroom in Manhattan, where their team of specialists guide interior designers, architects, and collectors through the studio's offerings. The legendary outfit also has an extensive catalog where each design can be customized endlessly, but they also carry stock carpets in standard sizes. As the offerings of Fort Street Studio are so expertly hand-knotted, photos rarely do these works of art justice. That's why an in-person consultation is so key. Only then can the subtleties of rug design and its colors truly come to life. To book your own consultation, visit fortstreetstudio.com. And speaking of missions, I mean, everybody here is a multi-hyphenate, uh, does lots of different things for different people. Um, do you guys have, have you, have any of you defined what success, personal success <laughs> looks like in terms of like career goals or like where things are going? I mean, obviously, you know, with everything being so fluid and nowadays, so project-based and so collaborative and, um, you know, no one's here is necessarily climbing a corporate ladder per se, like, like things used to be. Colin, like, what is, have you ever thought, like, what success looked right, like for you now? Because it seems like a lot of stuff has changed for you. You know, now you're designing product, right? And you have collections with, you know, rugs and, and uh, objects and all sorts of things with the brand menu and you have your book out. So like, what is success? Do you think about what that next, thing is that you think success 
even is for someone like you? Yeah, for sure. It's something I think about often, and I definitely don't think it's a tangible material thing. Um, because as I venture into all of these things, and there's books, there's product, like, I don't, um, I don't know, I don't, I don't feel successful, if that makes sense. I think, you know, success to me really is like, if I had a plate uh, in front of me, with everything on it, it's being content with that and wanting everything on my plate and not looking around at everyone else's plate, wishing it was different or saying this isn't good enough. I think, you know, true success is contentment and, um, and really being happy with what I have and not wanting for anything more. Um, and I, I don't know what that looks like. I really don't. I think, um, you know, t- putting one foot in front of the other, staying present, um, I've just learned to start saying no. I used to say yes to everything. And I'm such an experiential learner. I love learning. So I'm chasing all these experiences to learn. Um, Whether it's, you know, the editorial or the more commercial, like I feel I just love being in the work because that's where I learn and that's where I thrive. So I'm just going to keep saying yes. I'm going to try like the projects I really want to do and be a little bit more selective and see where it takes me because. I, again, I didn't know this was a job. I didn't know, I wouldn't have known to ask to be here and to be doing this. So, um, you know, I've had a lot of failures. I've had a lot of successes. Um, I think being open to both, learning from them and just trying to keep trying, to keep creating. Like, I, I love what I do. I love working. I really do. Um, sometimes I can beat myself up because I, well, one, I'm just hard on myself, but sometimes I can beat myself up for working too much. Uh, but I don't know. It's okay. I really, I really, really like it. I really like what I do. And um, yeah, I, I don't know what the future holds. And I, and I think I don't know what I would even ask for. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep going and we'll, we'll see. But success to me is really uh, being content with where I'm at, exactly where I'm at, with exactly what I have. And um, I don't know if I've experienced like a, a full uh, or like a lot of that, but there are occasions where there's like immense gratitude for, for just being here in this beautiful apartment even. Uh, so those, those are little successes, you know, it's not the, the grandiose things. It's like just waking up here, to be honest. So, in this today's world of styling, I wanted to ask you guys, you know, since you're always on all the time with events and Instagram and all that kind of thing, doesn't seem like anyone really uh, has a life outside of design. And we're also exhausted all the time. I'm wondering, does anyone here think about retirement? I hope to be have a, uh, a little home, like fully immersed in nature. Um, I don't know if I'll ever retire. I hopefully will always be kind of tinkering and working and creating and composing. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, I really, I imagine being somewhere like near the ocean with a lot of uh, lush foliage that I can have a garden and, 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 you know, grow flowers and just, I don't know. It sounds so gay, but yeah, typical, <laughs> typical gay retirement. I'm like, shit. Colin's really thought about this. I need, I need to start thinking about this retirement. I just plan. know what it looks. I just know what the place looks like, but right. I don't. I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm too neurotic. I'm too neurotic to think about <laughs> retirement. Maybe I'll go visit Colin in retirement in his nice home exactly. with his nice flowers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
I don't know. No, it, it totally um, freaks me out. The thing that I sometimes kind of think about is, um, you know, as we were talking earlier, like for a big part of my work is service related and is, 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 um, it's ephemeral. You know, I work, I spend a ton of time thinking about and obsessing over these things and then they happen and there's like a beginning, middle and end and then it's over and there's not, um, anything tangible that's left. And then obviously with product, um, that changed a little bit and now there's like you know a tangible thing that's like left in in in, the, in on earth and that idea for a really for a long time really freaked me out i felt like a huge sense of responsibility of making things that stay because i feel like there's already so much stuff out there and just like so much junk for lack of a better word and i just felt like this huge sense of responsibility of contributing to that in a way and is like you know why make like another thing when there's like so many things uh but i guess like the older i get and maybe this i I don't know i feel like not to get very dark but like the closer i get to eventually dying the more i feel um the more i think about that and i think like oh well what's gonna be left do i want anything left behind and i read this interesting thing about legacy um and they like interviewed like a whole bunch of people and it was it was just funny to to read people's different responses and a lot of not not to make it like about women or men or whatever but in in the end it felt like a lot of men were very um concerned with what they leave behind and the legacy and what's going to be here whereas within this group of people that they interviewed a lot of the women were less interested in that and more in um leaving an, an impression or a memory or things like that so i don't know I, i'm becoming like more okay with the things uh but i still feel like a huge sense of responsibility sometimes i think like at the end of my life i'll be even more okay with it and i'll be making like sculptures or something that's like like a large format thing and i'm just like i don't know i kind of i kind of yeah i think about that not so much about retirement alistair what do you want your what sort of impression would you like to leave in the world of fashion I mean, yeah, I just think what Layla said is so beautiful because I always find it really laughable when people talk about their legacy because there's so much ego involved. It's like really like, you know, like leaving a legacy. I mean, I think it's just important to try and be like a decent person today, really. Um, You know, I... uh, I don't know. I is that just, hard to do? Is that hard for someone who's not necessarily in the world of fashion? Did you find that hard to do? I mean, you're you're not a newcomer to the industry. You're working in it your entire life. You know, it, it's a really tough business. Yeah. Um, do you find that something that we just kind of say is like, oh, we just want to be a good person. But actually, that's do you find that hard? I mean, yeah, it's like a daily kind of, It's a daily choice, isn't it? You know, but I think um, and it's not and it sort of like definitely goes against the grain of like you know i think humanity but i don't know it's funny i think like i know like i know so many amazing people that work in fashion like like dear dear friends who are super caring and creative and beautiful people and like i think fashion sort of gets this bad rap it's a bit like the kind of like caricature of fashion and what that is and i think we've done a lot in the last like 20 years during my career to see change um of how people behave and how we operate and how much of a community it is, you know? And I think like, that's what's so amazing about ID magazine is like, it really is just like a community platform, you know? Um, And 
you know, I do listen, it's, you know, it's taken me many, many years to go from like being extremely selfish and competitive and ambitious and egotistical to try and be something else. You know, it's like, I'm not trying to say that I'm some kind of like saint. It's like, it's just definitely something I think, I guess it happens with age and experience and, you know, and also kind of like being able to achieve you know, more than I ever thought I would and like trying to be grateful for that. And, you know, just um, at the end of the day, like I'm just like a backup dancer, you know what I mean? Like that's the, th- I, the, the I don't see myself as like on the, anyway on the front lines. I'm here to like kind of help and sort of like just guide some kind of like creative community through something, you know? And I think like that's, I just have to stay there because if I don't stay there, then like, what am I thinking about like my legacy and should I write my autobiography? You know what I mean? It's completely ludicrous. Like, you know, then there's, then there's a lot of people that like get into that headspace where they just sort of drink, start drinking the Kool-Aid or whatever that phrase is, um, you know, that I don't think I've ever used that before, but there's a first time for everything. And I think like, you know, it's just, um, there, there's a humility also to getting older in the fashion industry. At the end of the day, it's like, like, what are we trying to hold on to? Like clawing our way like through something. And like at the end of the day, I think whenever you, as you get older in this business, you know, your job is to sort of like try and like usher in the next generation. You know, like that's it. Because otherwise, you just get bitter, and you just feel old and fat and tired and ugly and all of these things but if you're actually like helping a new generation come up then they actually appreciate what you're doing for them and you're helping them and there's an energy and you feel connected to the youth and you're excited and inspired then you know like that's a really amazing place to be i think so and i think id does that exceptionally well and that's the legacy is the like i said earlier the legacy is id you know what i mean the legacy is like the people that i work for and as we've all been talking about, we're in service industry, we're working for other people, you know, and I think as soon as we start to think like we're the person and we're the brand and we're the ego, then it's just going to be miserable, you know. And I'm curious if if anyone here could work with anyone else uh, in this uh, little trio I've assembled, uh, what would you guys want to do together? Let's put some let's put some fun ideas out into the universe and maybe there's a maybe there's a brand or a an investor out there that would want to um invest in my vacation or, or even three of you on, on, on yeah 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 maybe there's I mean, a hotel somewhere it, alistair if you design a furniture collection i'd love to to style the campaign oh I, that would be an honor i'd probably just be ripping you off to be honest <laughs> That's fine. Layla, um, no, I remember the first time I experienced your one of your installations. I can't remember. It was in Brooklyn. There was this like very long table and like everything was kind of covered in salt. Oh, yeah. And we, you had to like had break freeze. it open. Yeah. yeah, that was so incredible. I mean, I think it's funny because like um, so much of your work is experienced in like 3D. You know, it's very mm. tactile. It's very experiential where I think Alistair and I, I mean, Alistair produces or styles or fashion shows and things like that. But um, yeah, I think, I don't know, I would love to do more 3D in real life things because so much of my stuff is two-dimensional. So right. even like at Alcova, Layla and I both showed there with like the rugs and- In Milan. Yeah. Yep. And um, at Salone. So I don't know, something like in real life, something very cinematic where it was design, fashion, food could be really fun in some way. Yeah. Definitely. Layla, what do you think? 
I think that, I mean, I, I love collaborating with people and I, you know, all of my work is sort of collaborative. And I think the most sort of uh, the collaborations that I'm most happy with often start with um, it's like a conversation and a sort of shared sensibility and a shared way of looking at things as opposed to like, let's do this together. Like, let's make, let's design a chair together or whatever. And it's more um, like a, a sort of conversation. So that's, yeah, that's the way that I love working the most. And, and then it happens kind of organically. And that would be a nice conversation to have. And what's what's up next for everybody, Alistair? What what issue are you working on? This the this will come out and this podcast will come out uh, in the next season. It starts in May, so in May, uh, yeah, yeah. So we're actually just starting this week on the summer twenty twenty three issue of the magazine, um, which comes out in June. So right after this, um, but yeah, we really work on like one one edition at a time. So we just um, we just sent. Uh, spring to the printers which is very exciting i'm really happy with it and um yeah and then it's just honestly it's like we're just on the fashion show tree and it's like there's just fashion show after fashion show after fashion show and i don't go to a lot of them but i will uh, i'm going to paris next week i'll be in milan then back in paris and then on vacation <laughs> my new love colin what's next colin what's next for you um Obviously, the book is coming out in March, so it'll already have been out. Hopefully, everyone has one. And then, <laughs> um, yeah, and then I was shooting my next collection with Benny, my fourth collection with Benny um, in Paris. And yeah, there's... Benny Ruggs. Benny Ruggs, yes. Yeah. Um, a lot of exciting product stuff coming out and uh, even some exhibitions over the summer uh, as well. So, okay. Yeah. Layla, what what's next for you? I feel like all of our responses are really similar, which is kind of funny. But yes, I'm also going to <laughs> Paris, <laughs> also going to Milan, and I have several different projects also here and kind of going back and forth. And I guess this is coming out in May. I'm going to be having a baby in May, trying to figure all out right. how to trick uh, my uh, doctor and my boyfriend into <laughs> continuing to let me travel like two weeks before. <laughs> so, oh, see, this okay. is the most travel. exciting part of this conversation yeah, is totally. having a baby. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Boy or girl? Do you know a boy or a girl? Yeah, yes? it's a boy. Oh, right, that's well. so awesome, Layla. Congrats. Thanks. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Wow. Are you, uh, are that, is that, are you, are you, are you ready? No. I, I mean, I think, I think people <laughs> lie when they say they're ready. How could you possibly be ready? You just kind of, I don't, I, I don't know. I'll just figure it out. I get waves of just, huge anxiety and i kind of worry about everything from like practical things like is the baby going to be healthy to financial things to like how am i going to juggle my life to how whatever but then mm -hmm. i guess it just happens and you just kind of figure it out it's the way that we're all yeah. here yeah so remember that whole that whole wish about vacations and weekends you <laughs> yeah. You yeah. Want. that's why yeah. right Enjoy now i'm really now. yeah <laughs> Thank you to Colin, Layla, Alistair, Ethan, and Rebecca for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Till next time.